Welcome everybody, my name is Pav Bryan, I'm Performance Director and Co-Founder here at Spokes and you are listening to Bespoke, the cycling and triathlon training podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by an absolute legend of uh, modern day cycling broadcasting, Mr. Dan Lloyd. How are you doing, Dan? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure to have you on, mate. It's uh, uh, It's been really good and we've... Um, one of our previous episodes, we've uh, we've had uh, Chris and uh, Hank on, so it's really good to, to get you on. And uh, um, for the listeners, we're going to be talking about uh, how to get started in, in racing uh, with a focus on sort of general tips for uh, for how to how to progress, and then finishing with some some tips for for parents who are, uh, have got kids who are who are training and possibly racing, and uh, perhaps we'll call that how not to be a pushy parent. <laughs> Dan, yeah. uh, for 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 those of the people, I'd be surprised if there's anyone listening to this that doesn't know you um at least from gcn um but uh could you give everybody a uh, a little a little bit of information about you your, your, your experience as a, a racer and then uh, what you're doing with gcn please uh well so i started cycling competitively at the age of 14 as a mountain biker uh, cross country and continued doing that until i was 20 um but from the age of about 17 or 18 i was combining it with road racing eventually ditched the mountain bike side because I figured out that I wasn't going to be good enough to make a living from it and decided I might just about be able to on the roadside. Uh, so I headed to France and Italy as an amateur and then to Belgium as sort of more of a semi-pro and then sort of had my big opportunity in 2009 when I got to sort of top level team with Cervelo uh, and then I had three years at the top, which I absolutely loved, and then didn't get a contract renewal, and that was basically the end of that. But um, I, I loved every minute of it, and in the end, I was a full-time rider for a good sort of, 10 or 12 years. Um, and afterwards, I had to figure out what to do, which is when I ended up at GCN. <laughs> well, it's, it's been it's been great. Uh, I mean, like, I, I, I having sort of been, uh, had the pleasure of hanging around with you and seeing uh, how you guys work behind the scenes, and then obviously the progression from from your first ever video on GCN to where you are now it's uh, it's a, it's a real it's an amazing journey and uh, it's quite quite inspirational to be honest um just want to talk about your racing i've got a few questions actually what was your, what's the favorite race you ever raced in oh i always say the same one tour of flanders i mean that was the, that was the race that i always aspired to and always loved watching the most on television I always remember I used to go out for training rides on, on a Sunday, maybe in April, when the Tour of Flanders was on. I set out at nine in the morning, which is roughly when the pros would set out from Bruges or wherever they were starting back then. Get back after four hours, pretty tired, turn the TV on, and they'd still have sort of two and a half or three hours to go. And I just found it mind-boggling that to watch them, having done what I'd already done, that they'd, they'd done that too and still had to go even harder towards the end of it. And I just always loved the race and the sort of, you know, the, the Belgian riders that were so hard. Um, and again, never thought I'd have the opportunity to do it, but I did it in 2009 and, and had a great experience and ended up doing it, it three times. So, yeah, that's always my favourite race. Fantastic. And um, so you mentioned... Um that you started uh, started racing at the age of 14 and then you, you eventually sort of made your way over to, to, to Belgium and, and on the continent to race. Now, for the, for the listeners that um, 
that's always been that's been like the pro- the progressive the path, hasn't it? I mean, they, we, we've to- I've talked to like Ollie Jones, who's um, uh, got a great unique experience and probably a lot more modern day now. He's obviously he's a Kiwi and he won Zwift Academy, um, and he he says that he probably wouldn't have made it pro because where he is in the world, there's not much opportunity for that. And unless he was to pack his life up and move halfway around the world to like Belgium and and, and start that it probably wouldn't happen so we might see more of that going forward but what what's actually what what's that like that whole moving do you do you i mean we know we have like the dave rayner fund and, and stuff like that but if if there's someone listening to this that is interested um how would what would the steps be for for you racing more in belgium uh well i i started in france it's my first year abroad and i was of a team called ubc Trois in 2001 which actually rod ellingworth helped me get the the team there, and it was only for the second half of the year. I was still UK base for the first half, and I went over in June. Russ Downing was there, um, so I was sharing a flat with him. It was, it was it was a difficult experience actually because I I wasn't performing very well, um, and it was in the days when the internet was just getting started. So it was I think we did have internet in the apartment, but it didn't really work. So calling home was sort of the case of going down to the local pay phone box and and you know, using as little minutes as possible. So you didn't spend too much money. So, you know, I was a fish out of water, really. I didn't really know what I was doing. And as I said, I wasn't performing particularly well. I think a lot of that was down to some advice I'd got before I went out there, which was, you know, it's the first time you're going to be full time on the bike with nothing else to do, no other job or anything. Uh, So but don't go overboard with the training. Just use that as a a means of having extra rest, which I think actually is good advice. But I, I took it almost too literally and took too much rest. And had a couple of bad races, and a lot of them were one day. So, you know, if you have a couple of bad one day races in a row, let's say on a Wednesday and a Sunday, it means that, you know, on Monday and Tuesday, you're taking things relatively easy before the race on Wednesday. And if you pulled out of that after an hour or two hours, you haven't got much of a workout. You know, they've got Thursday to do a bit of training, and then Friday, Saturday, you're leading up to the next race. And I basically detrained, I think, over the course of the three months or so that I was there. And, and at the end of it, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go back. Um, but ended up with another team near Clermont-Ferrand in the centre of France in 2002. And that year went much better. I was much happier there. The training was going better. The racing was going better too. But that, like you said, that's always been the way that, that Brits or Australians or Kiwis have had to go if they want to make it. Because it's very hard to do that in your own country. You know, it's more convenient for us because it's just a short hop across the channel to get there. Um it's, it's slightly different now, I think, in terms of you know GB Academy and stuff and the Australian Institute of Sport. You can come through the, the track cycling and then earn yourself a contract through that. Um, so you don't necessarily need to be based abroad quite so much. But I think if you look at the success of you know, Geraint and Cav, Ian Stannard, you know, all of them were based down in Italy, albeit with a, with a GB squad. And they've come through the ranks and obviously done very well indeed for themselves. So... It's still something that I'd recommend, especially if you decide to do it after your A-levels and take a gap year, because it's almost like your own university education, really, you know, moving abroad, looking after yourself, learning a language, and immersing yourself in that cycling world. But there are different paths through to it now, um, so it's it's not the be-all and end-all, but it's also easier to be there, because you've got the internet, you can keep in touch with everybody by phone or by social media or by messaging or whatever. Um, uh, but it's a great experience. I, I would recommend it to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that uh, that's a really crucial point. I think even if you uh, 
uh, whether you ride bikes or not it's probably a really good thing to do isn't it to kind of take yourself away from what you're used to and to broaden your horizons but if you if you're if you're into cycling then why not combine the two and actually uh, and and have a have a go at that now um, I know I mentioned the obviously Ollie Jones the Swift Academy winner now, do you do you think that that's going to be uh, the the next progression in uh, in, in cycling, do you think that we'll see a lot more of that? Do you think that that's ever going to replace on the on the road racing, as, especially given the, the challenges that the British cycling and event organisers have in terms of uh, getting entries or getting volunteers and, and stuff like that? It really, Zwift makes it very easy to do a race, doesn't it? It does. I think we're going to see more and more of it and we'll see more and more youngsters that get into the sport through Zwift. You know, I've got a friend around the corner whose eight-year-old is really obsessed with Swift, but not too concerned with going out on his bike, which I know a lot of people will say is a bit sad, but it gets you into cycling in the first place, then that's that's fair enough. And, but as you know, you know, pro racing is it's a lot about numbers, but it's not all about numbers. So I, I think you'll get some people that are very specialist at Swift in the same way that you could get you know, a UK time trialist who's got a better FTP than I ever had as a pro racer. But, you know, that number is not everything. And there's a lot more that goes into being a good pro bike rider, you know, in terms yeah. of positioning and where you are in the bunch, getting into the right place at the right time. You know, it's a skill that you need to develop over the years. And if you're only doing Zwift, then that's going to be quite hard to develop. So I think, you know, we'll find some incredible talents, a bit like the old sort of GB talent spotters that went into school to test people. And I think you'll find the same thing on Zwift. They're going to find some incredible talents out there. And I'd say, you know, 10% of them will go on to have the skills necessary to, to be in the pro peloton and they'll become amazing athletes. You know, the others sometimes can fall by the wayside because, as I said, it's a, it, it's all good having the numbers. And I've coached a few people in the past that I've felt had amazing numbers but didn't get the results to go with it because of all the other factors that you have to put into it. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with you there. Um, what do you think, though? Do you think it's harder nowadays to progress through, um, do, even just through the sort of standard category system or, or reach pro? Or was it, uh, is there more competition nowadays? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's any harder to get there. I think it's harder in the pro peloton now. I was talking to Nathan Haas the other day, and he's you know, spanned a, a couple of generations now as a pro. And I and I already had this sort of thought in my head that this is must be what it was like. But he confirmed it to me that you have to be on it all the time. You know, there's, there's no opportunity to have a single beer during a race, which you know, wasn't the case in years gone by. And I think everybody knows what the best training is to do. Everybody knows what nutrition they need to have every single day. And you just can't slip up on any of it. You've got to be 100 percent committed almost 100 percent of the time. And, and that wasn't really the case back when I was racing. Um so I think it. I think it's a hard. I think it's going to be a harder sport in general to sort of stay in for a long time. And I wonder whether we'll see fewer riders with you know, the longevity of careers of people like Jens Fox or those other riders who carried on into late thirties or even early forties. Because I think it's going to be so intense as a career that you just won't be able to sustain that level of commitment for for that many years. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's probably a mental factor there as well. Is that um it's going to be very hard to mentally stay uh, committed because it is, it's a lot, isn't it? It's really, you sacrifice quite a lot and uh, uh, you really are having to, to fight or some people have, have to fight a lot of uh, sort of demons to, to be able to, to actually sustain that kind of performance edge and everything. So, 
Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So I guess let's talk about maybe um, what would be some key areas for you that uh, novice racers uh, should look to work on um, in, in terms of climbing up through the categories. Well, again, you know, numbers are a very important thing in terms of what you're able to do over the different durations. And I would say not to focus only on FTP because that's you know, it's a factor, but it's only one of the factors, particularly in road racing, where you also need to have you know, a sprint is always going to help you to get big results. Your one-minute power and your five-minute power, they're all things that you need to work on rather than just becoming somebody that can put out an enormous amount of power for an hour. I mean, everybody knows that, though. I'd say the, the biggest thing is just to work on what I was talking about before in terms of your positioning in the bunch, being able to save as much energy as you possibly can whenever you can, and always thinking about that. You know, something that I've noticed a bit, in the rides I've been doing for the past few days or even in a sportivo that a couple of years ago, the people that are just getting into the sport now, they, they don't really know exactly where to hide from the wind the best. You know, if it's coming from the right, they'll still be just directly behind the wheel or, you know, small things like that, which can add up and make a huge difference. And, you know, that was something that I was always quite good at and that, that made up for you know, perhaps not having as good a set of numbers as some of the other pros that were out there. I was always good at being in the right place at the right time or, or hiding out from the wind. And that, that can make just such a big difference to your result outcome at the end of a, a long, hard road race if you've saved enough energy. And again, with the rides that I coached, I can only put the the results that they got down to the fact they must have been using too much energy before they got to the crunch point, which meant that when they got to the crunch point, they weren't able to put out the same numbers as they were doing in training. So it's you know it's probably a slightly neglected skill in some ways because you spend so much of your time focusing on improving how powerful you are at whatever duration it might be that you can sometimes neglect the basic principles of, of road racing which is you know making sure you save energy whenever you can and, and being in the right place at the right time yeah absolutely it's a, a smarter way of racing isn't it it's uh um you really are not necessarily the the strongest but yeah if you're the smartest and you you kind of have that tactical um uh, edge over your competitors then yeah you you can you can be a a, a a force can't you you can really kind of kind of um learn to influence that but i guess for, for you where did you learn those skills and nowadays where would be the best place for people to do that i don't know where i learned them really i mean i, I guess coming from a sort of mountain bike background you know as a youngster sort of faffing about with my mates in the local woods i did a lot of sort of trials and jumping and wheelies and all that sort of stuff that you used to do as a teenager and then doing the mountain biking as well and a bit of cyclocross I think it just gives you a a greater level of confidence on your bike and you know what its limits are you know you can get out of a situation by hopping here or everywhere if you need to so I'd always recommend that if you want to become a road racer that you do a fair bit of either track mountain biking or cyclocross because I think all of those three just give you an extra set of skills that you don't get if you're solely a rider on the road you know track obviously you're you're in close proximity to other people without any brakes which to be honest scares me to death mountain biking and cyclocross you get the bike handling skills from being on different terrain and slipping all over the place but also getting to know the limits of the bike you know i think you can see that with peter Zagan as well you know he's, he's the master at positioning and he's always saving energy by being in the right place at the right time it, it looks effortless uh, but he's got a ma- background in mountain biking and I guess the same goes for Van der Poel and Wout van Aert from the cyclocross world that have come across to the road too and as I said that can make make such a huge difference and it's the same for somebody like Cavendish you know his sprints and a lot of his sprint wins 
were down to the fact that he was always in the right place at the right time. And I always said, actually, you know, what impresses me most about Mark Cavendish is not how many times he sprints to the win. It's how many times he's in a position to be able to sprint for the win. Because it's, I cannot, I, I can't even begin to explain how hard it is to come to 200 metres to go in third place. You know, everybody wants to be there. It's manic. It's incredibly fast. There's a lot of jostling. You're millimetres from every other rider. It's, it's, it's incredibly hard and an amazing skill to have. And that's what delivered him so many wins. Yeah, absolutely. I can I I I can I can completely agree with that. There, I think track. I just just from 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 my experience as well. I'm with you. Track track's fairly terrifying, isn't it? It's like, but I, I think I've never done it. Have you not? Oh God, I've done it a few times, and it's. I I, I think the the best way to describe it is is it's one of those things where you really you get excited and then all of a sudden it's it's very terrifying because you are very aware that hang on a minute I'm in this situation and there's very little I can do to get out of it because you yeah. can't stop you can't stop pedaling you can't like be the guy you don't want to be the person that takes everybody out so you are kind of really having to to force through through your fears so uh, totally agree with you there. I think that if you could be really good on the track, I think that you're going to be really good in positioning on a bunch on the on the road. Yeah. I can yeah, my only experience of a track is um, the year I retired and I was looking for other work and British Cycling were making a couple of little short documentaries on things. And I was asked to be a rider on a track, you know, just for them to film. And they used Cowshot, which is not too far away from me in Southampton. And I got there a bit early and I, I made the mistake of sort of walking in and going up the stairs and looking down. And it, I mean, <laughs> even by track standards, it is very steep because I think it's only 150 or 175 metres round. But I looked down and I just thought, you can't ride round that. It's like a wall of death. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got on it and I, the person doing the filming said, well, you didn't tell us you'd never been on a track before. And I said, well, I did. I thought it'd be easy. But the right. first time <laughs> I went up the banking and got some speed, flew down it and came to the corner. I mean, I was 32 by that point and I got to the corner and thought, well, I'm not going to make it round this because I'm not used to banking. I'm just used to flat corners. And my immediate reaction was to stop pedaling, which is, of course, the worst thing you can do on a yeah. track bike. Back wheel skipped up. Thankfully, I, I, sort of, I stayed on and I got used to it after that. But yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a great skill to have from a young age. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll we'll come on to that in a minute. We'll talk about uh, your experience with uh, your son and um, uh, and some of the the things that you see at some races as well. Um, but but let's talk a little bit more now with our, our novice races uh, as they're get, gaining more experience. Um, what's what's the best thing to keep seeing those improvements? Because I know a lot of people, uh, especially if you're very new to uh, to cycling or even to structured training, you you do see those almost unbelievable gains in in performance. We could talk about whether that's sprint or yeah, one minute, five minute, or FTP. Um, but but once once you actually start getting up uh, uh, more trained, it, the the gains become a lot smaller. So have you got any tips that you would say to to help keep those improvements coming? Uh, well, I just I would I'd say consistency to start. I mean, that's an obvious one, but um, you know it's very easy to do some big weeks get ill immediately and lose everything that you've got. Um, I mean, this, I'm talking a long time ago now, but back in 2007, um, when you know, training peaks were still relatively new and particularly um, the sort of CTL and ATL and TSB and all of that was very new, Bob Tobin coached me over the winter and he'd made this spreadsheet which allowed you to 
make sure that your training load was going up by no more than sort of seven or eight points per uh, week, um, which you couldn't do on training peaks at the time. They didn't have the graph to do it. So this spreadsheet was a great way of, uh, of getting around that. And, you know, the training felt incredibly easy, but I'd never seen so many gains over a winter as I did that year because I was so consistent throughout the whole way. I never got ill because I'd never pushed myself over my limit. I came out with, you know, some great powers at the end of the winter, which I'd sort of sustained all the way through the, the racing season as well. And it opened my eyes really to, to what could be done in terms of doing intensity over the winter as well. That it wasn't something to be afraid of. And the other thing that I'd probably revisit if I was going back to being a pro would be doing weight training. So that was something that I experimented with a few times, but the last time was when Hunter Allen coached me, which I think was probably 2008 or nine. And I did weight training all the way through. It must have been the winter of 2008 because I did weight training all the way through that winter, plus quite a lot of riding. And I felt really strong that next year in the spring classics, which is my you know, first time doing the biggest of the spring classics. And so after that year, I stopped weight training because I, you know, I used to do a lot of reading on forums and wherever I could about training. And there was quite a lot of arguments out there at the time, which basically said, well, strength is not really a limiting factor for an endurance cyclist because, you know, anybody you pick off the street pretty much can do 450 watts. They can only do it for two seconds, but they can still do it. And so it's not that they're not strong enough. They just don't have enough fitness to be able to sustain it. And so I thought, well, I'll, you know, I don't really need to do, I'm not, not a sprinter, I don't really need to go into the gym. But I don't think it's by coincidence that I got such good results the next year. And I was, I was probably one of my, you know, 71, 72 kilograms, which was heavier than normal for me. But I seem to be performing better than normal as well. Yeah, absolutely. We're a big fan of uh, strength and conditioning here. We've got uh, Scott Pearson's on our, our expert panel. He's a uh, British cycling and uh, he's a... Uh, Forever, we've done a quite a few podcasts actually. So for the listeners that want a bit more information on what strength and conditioning can look like for an endurance athlete and uh, how to dispel some of the myths, because there are and the forums can be some of the worst places to look at stuff like this, um, because there is a lot of uh, like you know your, your mates who who think they they know best, the armchair coaches almost, and I'm sure there's a lot of very good uh, advice being bounded around and passed around, but it's uh, it's finding out what works best for you and. Uh, uh, we've um, yeah we we managed to get a, a really great strength and conditioning coach in Scott to come and uh, uh, and be on our uh, spokes expert panel. So really grateful to have his input in in terms of what we do with our clients. But completely agree with you, Dan. I think that strength con- strength and conditioning and consistency are some uh, really good uh, pointers. Uh, especially like I like what you say about not that kind of not being tired and uh, and maybe introducing some in- intensity throughout the winter too, which is another thing that is i wouldn't say relatively new anymore but it was definitely uh, something that never got done in a few decades ago was it no and it's it's a difficult one when i think when you're talking to somebody who's not a full-time rider versus somebody who is because you know for all that i can say well you know i was it was worked great for me to do intensity over the winter by that point i was 27 or 28 and i'd got years of doing long rides behind me so i already had probably a big endurance base and so I guess it might not be the same case for somebody that's two years into it and might need to to do the endurance I think you just got to look at at what you you're good at yourself and what you're not good at and and I was always good at endurance and I never really sort of found that I was putting out less power at the end of a ride than at the start and so just by increasing my power over the winter months I'd perform better the next year 
Yeah, I completely agree. I think that uh, yeah, winter is a, a great time for working on those weaknesses and you can set out a plan in terms of which of those weaknesses are your biggest limiter and how that relates to your goals and then uh, uh, set out what you're actually going to do in terms of uh, making that better or rectifying that and, and, and becoming yeah. stronger. Well, I mean, the winters, part of the reason why the winter can be so beneficial is just because you are able to have that consistency because it's the one period as a pro cyclist where you're in the same place for a long period of time. You know, you can you get yourself into your own routine. You can organize your own massage somewhere or whatever it might be. And you're not having to fly to a race. You're not normally having more than one day of rest at a time. You, know, you might do a three-day block and a two-day block as your week. Whereas as soon as the racing season starts, although you're getting those, although you're getting those stage races, there are a lot of one-day races thrown in as well. And when you actually look at how much stress is on your body over the course of a week, it's not as much as what you're doing in the winter because you've got a couple of rest days before the race, you've got one afterwards. So in a four-day block, you've only got one really stressful day. Um, so that was something I thought about a lot as well over the last couple of years of, of my career. And, and I guess you could take that advice on during the middle of the season as well. If there's a period of four weeks or so where you haven't got a race and you can just be based in the same place for that four weeks, then, then you can make some pretty big gains then, I think. Absolutely. Just a quick one. For, for the listeners who aren't on a, a team yet uh, and they, they might get to pick their own races, which ones they go to, how would you, I mean, would you, would you recommend racing every week during the, the season? Uh, no, I don't think I would, I, you know, or at least if you if you're so fanatical about racing, you love it so much that you do want to race every weekend of the season, you need to just obviously like people have always done, sort of mark them down in importance and and sacrifice a couple of them by training the day before and possibly the tr- training the day after because it's those back to back days that really give you the fitness and then obviously the rest that gives you the form. And you can you can find that with doing racing every weekend that like I said before you're you're having a couple of rest days before to make sure that you're fresh for it, a day after to recover, and and so actually the amount of training you're getting in is dwindling compared to what you did over the winter. So I I'd personally recommend you know doing at least splitting the season into two and having a bit in the middle where you can refocus on just just training and doing your own thing rather than competing, just so you can get that base again for the rest of the year. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's some some fantastic points in there as well, like um, uh, categorizing. You can just use the old system A, B, C, with your A's being your your most yeah. important ones, and they're the ones which you you taper into. And C's are the ones where, yeah, as you say, you might go and uh, it might be part of a two day block where you you know the races is just just going to be something that you're going to have to get through and grit your teeth. But um, certainly, I I think that. I'm I'm completely with you. I think that if if somebody is an absolute like loves the racing, then fine, do it. But I think that actually racing every weekend uh, throughout the season probably isn't the best way to see uh, the best results, especially towards the end of the season, where I think that, like you say, it's very hard to maintain a uh, that consistent training like you do during the winter. So uh, yeah, great advice there. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to do things like there, there was a really great road race in the evening on a Thursday, uh, not far from where I used to live, in fact, even close to where I live now, called Barnesfield Heath. And with that, I used to often sort of go out and do three hours before the before the race, go there, do a couple of laps, start the race, and you know, I'd come home with almost five hours on the clock, but with the intensity at the end, and that always used to work quite well. 
Yeah, I've um, I've coached a few uh, sort of um, pros as well, neo pro, and he's uh, we used to do stuff like uh, uh, to keep his mind occupied because he loves a, he loved a time trial. We would send him out on sort of like a, a four hour ride before he'd rock up at his club ten, do the club ten, and then ride home. And it would almost every week, even with like four hours before win. <laughs> it's yeah. it's really nuts, isn't it? It's a, it's a to- totally different level that uh, that the sort of the the pros work at. Um, so let's talk a little bit. We don't, you mentioned consistency. Um, and uh, and that being one of your biggest um, factors in terms of uh, where you're going to see good gains from. But there's obviously uh, times where mentally you might be th- feeling like you're not going anywhere. Um, what Have you had an experience like that? What would you suggest to people who are kind of getting in that hole where they're like, maybe they're not getting the results, maybe training, the numbers aren't improving as much as they want. Um, it's hard for people to not just throw in the towels. So how do they not do that? Well, it, that period of your cycling is rarely because you're not doing enough, even though that's the first thing to be tempted to look at and think, well, maybe I'm not pushing myself as hard as I used to, or maybe I need to do a bit more to start seeing more improvement. As you know, that's that's very rarely the case. So often, you know, when you're reaching those plateaus, like a week or two just of, of taking it easy mentally and physically and, and you know, eating some of the foods that you've been restricting yourself with, reducing the intensity and the volume of your training, and just having a bit of a reset, really, you know, hopefully that point comes for you at the end of the season. You can just have your off season. But if it comes during the year, often the worst thing you can do is to just try and ramp things up even further. I mean, I, I had a period in 2011 at the start of the year where I felt absolutely fine off the bike. As soon as I jumped on it, there was just something missing. I didn't feel ill I couldn't put my finger on what it was. I just couldn't hit the numbers that I knew I was capable of. And it only probably went on for three or four weeks. But after three weeks, you start thinking to yourself, well, maybe I just didn't, maybe I'm kidding myself. Maybe I didn't used to hit those numbers as easy as I'm thinking. And you're starting to think, well, maybe I just need to train harder. And then something happened and whatever underlying virus I might have had just went. And I remember the first day I went out and I suddenly felt myself again. It was it was such a relief to think, oh, no, I wasn't, you know, that wasn't just me in my head thinking that I used to be able to do it. I can do it. You know, sometimes you don't know what's holding you back or what's made you plateau. But as I said, it's not normally because you're not doing enough. And often it's best to try and throttle back, recover, replenish your stores and start again and hope that uh, once you start again, you're, you're fresher, you're more motivated and you can start to reach a new high. Absolutely. And uh, I think that uh, on that, I think we'll, we'll we'll move the topic of conversation uh, onto uh, onto parenting because uh, obviously you you've got a, uh, a young lad. How old how old is he? Uh, the younger one is eight. Eight. So which is the one that uh, if if we've if we've been watching your Insta story, which is the one that does a lot of cyclocross or do they yeah, both? He is the eight year old. That's Jude. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And uh, so, uh, how much? I mean, he's obviously super. He he's loves it because we, we've spoken. He's uh, obviously very very much into that. How do you parent him with this? I guess because that's it. are you having to push him, or does he just like is it just like a, a total like laissez faire sort of attitude towards it? Um, well, we've so I've got Ralph who's now 17, so he's gone from two to four wheels. Um, <laughs> yeah, so with, with both of them, I've always um, I've always given them access to it in terms of I've sort of got both of them off their stabilizers by the time they were three, they've you know, always had half decent bikes partly because i'm in the industry and i can get them at trade price which helps um and whenever there's been a race on locally i've always said you know do you want to go along and do it and sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no 
but just it was a bit recently with Jude. You know, he, he's he's taken to the bike always a bit more than Ralph did, but he's done golf, or he still does golf and cricket and football quite regularly as well. Uh, but a company called Kids Racing, who makes cyclocross bikes for kids, called Hup, uh, wrote to me and asked if he'd like to borrow a cyclocross bike for the winter. So I spoke to Jude and said, look, they're offering to send you one down. You're in an enormously privileged position because not many kids would get that. But I don't really want you to accept it unless you want to do a couple of races because they won't get much back from it otherwise. And uh, and so he said, yeah, I'd, I'd be up for doing a couple of races. Anyway, as soon as this bike came, he was just in love of it and wanted to go out on it every day and was immediately going quite fast because it's a sort of obviously road style bike being cycling across rather than his old mountain bike. Um, and we did quite a lot of riding over the forest. And when the first race came, it was about an hour away, just near Winchester. And he absolutely loved it. I mean, he didn't do particularly well, but then I didn't do very well at my first race either. And I was a bit frustrated on the sidelines because he was, he, he was far too polite. And if he was going into the corner next to someone, he'd always let them go in first. Uh, but he got to the end and was already asking you know, where the next race was and where he could do it. And that was probably about eight weeks ago, I guess. That's fantastic, honestly. <laughs> yeah, he's been he's been loving it ever since, and he made sort of massive strides in his in his results in the first sort of four races that he did. He really started to get it, you know, the fact that you need to sprint off the start and get yourself a good position, um, and and continues to want to go out on it to this day. In fact, last weekend we did a, a ride that was sort of half road and half off road, and it's pretty grotty over here at the moment. We've had so much rain, so off road it's just really mucky, but. The following day, so I wanted to do the same loop. So we got changed, and I looked out the window, and it was absolutely hammering it down. And I was thinking, I don't want to want to go out in this. And he looked at me and said, "That's good because uh, I'm not very good on the mud at the moment. It'll be even muddier out there now." And so I was thinking, "Oh no!" But you know, it just shows that he really wants to go out at the moment. He, he's genuinely enjoying it, so that's great. Yeah, that is great. That's and I think that that's um, something that we've talked about as well. Is that you're? It sounds like you're not having to push him um, too much. Have you have you spoke to him about whether? I mean, he's, he's probably quite young for this, but whether he sees that as cycling as part of his future. Well, he does. But then you, you I asked him last year you know, to put in order of importance or how much he he liked it. You know, his sports, and I think it was football first, then golf, then cricket, and then cycling. And now it's just changed the bound. So, you know, you can never tell. I don't think um, you can only give them access to all these different sports. And I've, you know, from my point of view, I don't think you need to specialise in cycling from a really long, young age. You know, that's different if you want to get into swimming or tennis, where the technique is absolutely crucial. If you haven't got it by your early teens, then you're probably never going to make it. There's a certain degree of technique in cycling, uh, but as long as you picked it up by the time you're 14 or 15, or you know, as in started to race, you, know, you can see it with Michael Woods. He was a runner for many years, and I'm sure he'd say that he could be better as a cyclist had he learnt the etiquette of the peloton earlier, but it's not sort of holding him back too much. As long as you've got the, the physiology and the, and the aptitude to do it, I think you can specialise a bit later in life when it comes to endurance cycling. Um, yeah, at the moment, he's saying that he wants to be the next Matthew Vanderpool, but I already said that mm-hmm. that might be quite a lofty ambition. But uh, no, he seems to want to do it at the moment. Fantastic. And um, yeah, I think that there's some really good points you've raised and uh, I, I'm totally with you. I can't speak for the swimming side, but from a cycling point of view, I mean, until probably around about the age of 14, I 
I strongly advise parents when they ask me about how much cycling a child under the age of 14 should be doing. I say as much as they want to do, but they shouldn't be totally focused on cycling or riding a bike. There should be there should be other sports in there. And, uh, and once you get to 14, you still might not focus solely on cycling and um, you might just be you might look to have more complementary sports uh, in there to to help boost that but um you and i dan we've both spoke about this and uh from from experience of seeing this uh what what's what's your experiences about of pushy parents what's it like at the side of a, a cx race it's the same as it is on the side of a football match right you know, <laughs> the, the, the parents are you know there's parents like this everywhere aren't there you know that yeah i guess half of them want to live their own dreams out through their kids and are desperate for them to perform but i think you know sometimes you can just be a bit a bit too desperate um and it's it's a young age to sort of push a kid too hard into something uh especially a sport like cycling you know that when i was growing up i mean i didn't start racing until like i said i was about 13 or 14 and i wasn't really that good and as i progressed through the ranks there were so many riders who i i'm almost sure were a lot more talented than i was that were winning consistently for many many years but then when it came to the points at which it was really important you know end of juniors start of seniors they just got fed up with it and there's other distractions like you know, drinking and and women and whatever else came along when you're sort of that, at that age and they just fell by the wayside and, and turned their back on the sport and never really made of themselves what I felt they were capable of making of themselves and I just think it's it it's too hard of a sport to push somebody into it anyway. Like, I think if you know if, if you're a snooker player like Ronnie O'Sullivan, he's quite open in saying like, I, you know, I'm not as dedicated as other people, and he has bad moments where he's got no motivation. But it's such a technique-based sport, and he's so talented at it that he can get away with that. Whereas with cycling, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't want to go out for five hours when it's pouring with rain, you're probably not going to make it eventually. And I think if you start pushing that onto a youngster that's you know nine ten or even 12 or 13 then you risk getting to the point where it's important where they've they've suffered so much and they've spent so many times getting cold and wet and miserable that they don't want to do it anymore so that's always been a sort of fear of mine just based on my own experiences of, of growing up as a teenager doing it and it's probably almost pushed me the other way like maybe I don't give them enough encouragement to go out but I you know, I really, really wanted to do the sport of cycling and I was so self-motivated and I think you have to be. So I think, you know, if, if Ralph had wanted to do it or if Jude does want to do it, he'll motivate himself and he'll know that he can always go out with me and he's always going to be surrounded by the sport because of the nature of what I do. So the opportunity's there and, and if he wants to do it, I'll, I'll take him round. But I've set a limit of one hour to get to a race at the moment because I just, <laughs> you know, it's a 12 minute race. I'm not going to drive up to Oxford two hours away. For 12 minutes might as well just do yeah. a ride this hour an hour and a half in the new forest and, and you'll probably get more out of it it reminds me of all of my friends who do like a three hour round trip or even longer to go and uh and ride on like the um e2 or whatever it is and do like a, try and do a sub 20 minute 10 mile an hour it's a 10 mile tt it's uh yeah it's a crazy sport we live in isn't it where we we really do uh we do go to some extreme lengths to to see those uh um, to sit to, to to race and everything. Yeah, and again, you know, as you get older, you're going to be doing more and more travelling. And if you want to be a successful cyclocross rider, by the time you're 15 or 16, you'll be travelling over to Belgium every other weekend. So that yeah, there's so much travelling to come that I just think I'm not. It's stupid to sort of put him through that now at, at the age of eight. You know, 
yeah. when he can just yeah. equally go out and do a bike ride and make more improvements. Absolutely, and I think that that I think that the crucial point there as well is that, and um, and anyone who listened to the 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 um, uh, episode that we did with Chris Opie and Hank, uh, they we pretty much finished on exactly the same point: is that although it, theirs wasn't coming from a, a pushy parent point of view, um, we all have said now. So that's four of us that, that there's so many young athletes that have dropped off or given up because they have gone all in from an age that is just too too young and uh, maybe somewhat naively kind of either been pushed or self-motivated too much to the point where actually you get round to the point where you might be able to turn pro or you've you've done a little bit and, and you've already had enough and it's uh it is it's a it's a shame isn't it yeah I mean you can have the flip side of it as well people like Ben Swift or you know, Russ Downing, who's only just retired at the age of 40 or 41, they both started racing when they were seven and, and were obsessed with yeah. it from that point. You know, there are people out there who were very good pros who started at a very young age and, and were very committed to it and put everything into it, and that didn't put them off. But equally, it might be that they'd have been just as good had they started at the age of 12 or 13. Yeah, that's true. And I wonder then, is the advice there as a, if you're a parent of a, a promising young athlete, is it to maybe find someone like a coach or even someone from British Cycling who can give the advice based on their years of experience working with kids? Because I imagine that there's going to be some traits that that a child will display that will give a, a professional um, a a good idea of whether or not they're going to be able to sustain a, a, a lot of hard work or whether they need more of a softly uh, kind of approach to their training and, and progression. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they're the experts. You know, if you're working with kids in a specific sport all the time, then you're going to know more than anybody else on how to help develop them and make sure that they don't get burnt out and assess assess them mentally really as much as physically because that's a lot of what it it comes down to at the end of the day absolutely absolutely and on that let's uh let's wrap this up dan uh what can we be seeing what's happening with you right now uh well i had a week off work this week so i have been actually riding my bike because i don't do that much these days (laughs) um we've got a new gcn app and a few weeks ago we were being encouraged as presenters to, to post on there and i thought well i'll put a selfie up from a ride i did with jude and i said for every like I get, I'll do a kilometre, thinking that you know the app's new. There's not that many users at the moment, so I'll probably get 50 or 60 at the most. And then, um, yeah, it sort of escalated. It got to 200, and I was thinking, well, that's. I didn't specify a time frame within which to do it, but I might struggle to do 200 k's on a single day. I started thinking I could maybe get a sort of Kipchoge style arrowhead formation of riders in front of me on a, on a flat <laughs> side that I might get round it in that scenario. Yeah. Uh, anyway, then it then it got up to sort of over a thousand. I think it's on fourteen hundred or something at the moment. But I was trying to think how I would fulfil my promise, uh, which I stupidly made. And I had this week off work this week, and Monday was the twenty fifth of November. And I thought, well, that's exactly a month before Christmas, so I will promise to do a thousand kilometres uh, before Christmas Day. So I, I've tried to sort of front load it because I've had that week off work, and I I won't have so much time to ride my bike over the next three weeks or so before Christmas. Um, so yeah, I'm suitably shattered already. Uh, I've done, I think I've done 400 kilometres in the first four days. So I'm, I'm quite happy with that because the weather has been absolutely terrible. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to raise some money for World Bicycle Relief at the same time. Good man. So that's, yeah, that's... Uh, that's going okay. And then work-wise, it's the same old, same old, really. Like GCN show, GCN racing new show, the other videos that we have to do every week. 
uh, up at the office and then I'm looking forward to the racing season starting because that's what I do mainly these days on GCN is take charge of, of the racing coverage that we've got. Absolutely. And will we be seeing you at the uh, GCN event in Mallorca in March? You will be, yeah. I'll be over there and hopefully, hopefully reasonably fit if I manage to carry on riding my bike. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be having another Lloydie's pub quiz. Yes, yeah, and on the other days you'll probably find me in the pub as well. (laughs) Karaoke, Dan. (laughs) Excellent. And uh, for for the listeners at um, GCN events, sold out the uh, Mallorca event, but there'll obviously be more opportunities during the year. So head over to their website, um, and I'm sure that they you will be able to find out more information. Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate, to have you on. Um, and uh, I know the listeners will be very grateful for uh, hearing some some of your advice and uh, some of the wisdom that you picked up through your, through your many years of racing. Uh, my pleasure, yeah. Thanks for having me on, Pav. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you very much for, for joining in. Just remember to make sure that you've uh, uh, subscribed. And uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, leave us a little uh, a thumbs up or share with your friends or uh, a review if you're on a, on a listening on a platform that allows that. Apple Apple does. If you go to Bespoke, the main page, leave us a review there, please. It'd be fantastic. And uh, we've got lots coming up and uh, uh, we'll look forward to, to seeing you again soon. Uh, my name is Pav Bryan. I'm Performance Director and Co-Founder here at Spokes. And you've been listening to Bespoke. Boat.